everybody. Welcome back to Gray Malkin Lane, the podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. Now, Gray Malkin has been doing a lot of different things lately. We've been interviewing professionals and doing trials of characters uh, and taking steps back into continuity in the early 60s book. But we're continuing our trend with uh, X-Men number 37 in the original lineup today. Uh, there's a lot happening. This is the middle issue of a three-part epic uh, things got real serious in the book after lots of nonsense issues in a row. Uh, so just as a recap, the uh, X-Men, our five Mary Mutants, have reached the Factor 3 base in Europe. Uh, the Changeling has been revealed as the leader of the Factor 3, serving the mysterious mutant master. Uh, the teens also learned that the their old villains Vanisher and Mastermind and Blob and Eunice the Untouchable are all working for Factor 3. Uh, Professor X and Banshee are still unconscious captives, and Factor 3 has revealed their plan to drive the world into World War III, pitting the Soviet Union and the United States against each other in the Cold War uh, and making mutants kind of rise to the top. So that's kind of where we left things off last time when we did our review. Uh, lots of nerdy 60s stuff happening. We have a lot to talk about today. But first, we get to interview the iconic and incredible artist, uh, Bob McLeod. Uh, Bob, welcome, and thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks very much. I'm glad to be here. So happy you're here. We also have the hosts of what was previously the Two Rivers, Two Takes podcast, which I love because I love the Wheel of Time. I think you guys are going through some changes. Uh, and we're thrilled to have Gabriella, uh, the girl who sits back with us as well. Let's have everybody uh, briefly just kind of introduce yourselves. Um, and then we're just going to uh, we're going to talk to Bob for a while. Bob, do you want to start? Tell us a little about yourself, where people might know you from. Uh, and then we will go to uh, to the rest of our guests. Sure. Um, I'm a longtime Marvel and DC comic book artist. Um, pretty much uh, wanted to be a cartoonist since I was about four or five years old and found my way into comic books and kind of just stayed there. I never really strayed far away. I did some advertising and uh, illustrated and wrote a children's ABC book um in the 2000s but for the most part i've just uh been penciling and inking uh comics for my whole career and uh started in 1974 and um just recently considered myself basically retired from the comic book business although i actually in the next couple of weeks i'm going to be doing a variant cover for marvel oh how wonderful are you able to tell us what that is yeah, it's going to be a New Mutants. It's an anniversary issue of the New Mutants uh, is is why they're having me do it. And I haven't decided exactly uh, what the scene is going to be, but I like to do the whole group that I uh, co-created when I draw them. So it'll be, you know, the group doing something or other. <laughs> that is, a, that is a, a wonderful thing to look forward to. I have a lot of New Mutants questions today, but uh, let's let the rest of our guests briefly introduce themselves. Hey there, I'm Daryl. I'm Philip. And uh, we are the co-host of the upcoming X-Factor Files podcast covering the X-Factor Investigation series. So, uh, Chad, like you mentioned, we covered the Wheel of Time TV series when that was on. And we just wanted something that was more sustainable and long-term and not at the whim of when a TV season was <laughs> Um, because it's really hard to keep up on stuff like that. So yeah, especially when there's a few years between uh, between seasons. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, Philip, yeah, and um, very new to a lot of comic book things. So um, within the past year or so, I've been picking up a lot of stuff that Daryl has been showing me, and it's been good. I've been learning a lot. Yeah, about characters like I only knew from like video games. So 
Yeah, a lot of material like this is cool to read. Try this one out and try it on for size because um, as everyone who is on this call right now and everyone listening knows, there is really a comic out there for everyone as just what you find and what really speaks to you. So, And uh, Daryl's been on the podcast before. It's nice to have you here as well, Philip. And you guys are real-time boyfriends, right? Like, Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, we are part- we're partners in life. We're partners in podcasting. So how um, wonderful. Um, we should have our first episode out of X Factor Files by the time this episode hits. So wonderful. I look forward to listening. That's one of my favorite eras of comics. And Gabrielle, how wonderful to have you back. It's been so long. How are you? Thank you so much. I'm doing great. Um, I uh, just took the bar exam a couple weeks ago, so I'm tired, but good. <laughs> Happy to be here. When do, you that, get your, when do you get your results? Uh, April 13th. Okay. So I'm going to live as much as I can until that date. So we'll <laughs> see. Um, but yeah, my name is Gabriella. Uh, I have a blog called The Girl Who Sits, and I just recently became more active on it again because the exam is over. Um, on the blog, I talk a lot about disability, and I did a post about X-Men. It was one of my first things I ever did on my blog because I really find X-Men to be a really excellent um, discussion about marginalization. That sounds really familiar to me for my disability identity and to a lot of people for their uh, other identities. So, um, yeah, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Now, Mr. Bob McLeod has been working in comic books for decades. He has worked for Marvel and DC. He has penciled hundreds of covers, inked thousands of pages, uh, and he has created some of the most iconic characters that we know and love in the X-Men and out. When Chris Claremont took over the X-Men books, uh, they rose into superstardom. They went from kind of obscurity into becoming kind of the world's most famous comic book there for a while. Uh, the X-Men became super popular. There was a period of time and continuity that went off into space. Professor X thought they were dead. And he created a new team of students to train, uh, which is uh, where Bob came in. Uh, tell us a little bit about those early days. Uh, how did you get the gig working on the New Mutants? Uh, and then I want to talk a little bit about the characters you created as well. Yeah, I think a lot of it is just being in the right place at the right time at the um you know, having the abilities needed for the job. But um, I had done a couple of uh, villain issues on the X-Men right before the New Mutants, uh, Uncanny 151 and 152. And Chris and Louise, uh, the editor, liked what I did on those issues. And I forget who the artist was right before me. Might have been Paul Smith. Um, I'm not sure. But any anyway... Maybe it was Dave Cockrum, but whoever had just left and they needed an artist for the X-Men and they offered uh, the X-Men to me as a regular series to pencil. And up until that time, I had only penciled a handful of fill-ins. Um, I was, my career as an inker had taken off uh, earlier than my penciling. And um, I was, you know, really excited to get a chance to pencil the X-Men. And then they just said, oh, but also we've got this uh, other project. Uh, we're going to be spinning off a new series from the X-Men with younger ex-mutant uh, characters. And um, you could be co-creator on that series if you want. And I said, um, well, gee, you know, I really wanted to draw the X-Men. <laughs> you know, I was really looking forward to that. Um, 
And at the time, you got to realize, um, I didn't know if the New Mutants were going to be a total bust and, and go away after a few issues or what was going to happen, if I was going to like working on that book when I knew I'd have a great time working on the X-Men. Um, so it was a very tough decision, but I, I decided, um, you know, when am I, I might never get another chance to be co-creator on a series. So I've, I've got to take this. Uh, so I decided, sure, you know, count me in, in for that. Uncanny X-Men 151, 152 is the iconic storyline where Kitty Pride gets sent to Emma Frost's school and it's a big plot. And then Emma switches brains with Storm and there's all kinds of crazy antics that take place. And your art on it is just gorgeous. Uh, I can see why they asked you to stay. Was it uh, was it fun for you to draw those issues? Oh yeah, sure. Uh, two women fighting up in the sky, you know? <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Um, Everything that happened in those issues, I like drawing the Sentinels and they were in 151. Um, you know, it was just really fun, which again, I, I really wanted to keep going with that instead of going on to this new series. But, um, you know, then we started talking about what the new series might entail and Chris wanted to bring in um, more of a multicultural thing. Um, we, uh, had to come up with uh, he had when I was brought on board. Chris already had some names in mind and some powers in mind, um, but nothing was nailed down. So we kind of talked through exactly what their powers were going to be and how they would manifest. And you know, I liked uh, drawing girls, and uh, Chris likes writing girls. So I said, why don't we have more females on the team than males? Because up to that time, I think you know, every other team had just like a token female. Um, so we both agreed to, to have more females on the team. And um, I think Rain was originally gonna be an Iranian character. Mm. And then uh, Chris decided to switch her over to S Scottish. Um, so was, there was a lot of changes going. We didn't even have a title for the book yet. Um, so we tossed out some various titles and um, I forget, maybe Louise came up with the name, The New Mutants, and I never really liked that name, <laughs> but I couldn't come up with anything better. So we ended up going with The New Mutants. Oh, we decided, you know, are we gonna have individual costumes? Are we gonna have a school uniform? Um, and so we talked that over. Uh, and you, you kind of did a take off of the original X-Men uniforms, except more stylized. Uh, tell us about working with Chris Claremont and Louise Simonson, who are two of my absolute heroes. Yeah, Louise, uh, responsible for me getting some of my favorite jobs in my career. Um, she's been an angel. Um, we always got along really well. And um, Chris, I my very first superhero penciling job was also written by Chris, uh, Marvel Team-Up 86 with the Guardians of the Galaxy and Spider-Man. Yeah. Um, and my, I'm sure I had inked some issues that Chris had written before that. Um, so I knew Chris, I knew more of Chris. I didn't, I didn't even know if I had met him officially before then. Um, I must've seen him around the office, uh, but I don't, that's so long ago. I don't really remember when we actually first met, but we kind of got to know each other as we were forming the new mutants. I, uh, I interviewed June Brigman a few weeks ago and I asked, what was it like to work with Louise Simonson? And she gave me a one word answer. She said, easy. <laughs> yeah, that's another thing. You know, uh, Weezy's kind of the editor that um, 
doesn't push you or um, get in your way. She she trusts you to do the job or she wouldn't have hired you in the first place. And um, it was just so easy working with her. Yeah. One of the things about your art, well, there's a lot of things I love about your art, Bob, but one of the things I'm most impressed with is you pay such careful attention to portraying characters, ethnicities uh, in authentic ways. And you can see that back when you're doing the Storm versus Emma fight or particularly in the way that you do the uh, the portrayal of the characters. Now, the colorist, of course, works a lot on that as well as the inker, but uh, the, the authentic portrayal of characters from different cultures, rather than having them all look like white people with different colors of hair, you know, uh, it, it's clear that you put a lot of care and effort into those designs and portrayals. Uh, do you want to speak on that at all? Yeah, you know, when I got in the business, that's pretty much the way they did things back then. They would just change somebody's hair color and, you know, then it was a different character when it would look just like the other guy right. <laughs> or the other girl. You know, the, all the girls looked the same. All the guys looked the same. Um, my background was not in comic books. I, I was a big uh, Mad Magazine fan as I was growing up. I was a, I really wanted to be more Drucker, who did the movie satires, TV satires for Mad Magazine. Um, so I like doing caricatures. I like drawing, you know, the the uh, oddities of the way humans can look rather than handsome heroes. And I actually never uh, really, I missed the whole Marvel revolution in comics when Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four and all those came into being. I was reading Mad Magazine. I wasn't reading comics. Um, I only got into comics because I was working at a grocery store and this friend of mine, who was a huge Marvel Comics fan, found out I could draw. And he said, oh, you got to work for Marvel. And I thought, well, yeah, I'll, I'll start there and then probably move on to Mad Magazine. Or I wanted to get my own newspaper comic strip or something. Uh, maybe work for Walt Disney. Um, I really never intended to work for comic books. Um, but then I, I, when I tried to get a job doing comics, I got rejected. Uh, went up to the uh, editor of DC Comics or the art director at the time, Joe Orlando, longtime uh, comic book artist, was the art director at DC at that time. And he said, wow, you put a lot of work into these samples, but you really need to go back to school and learn how to draw. And, you know, up until that time, I was like 24 years old. Everybody I had ever met just uh, was always complimented me on my drawings and tell me how, how good I could draw. And then I get up there to New York and he's telling me I don't know how to draw. So it was, it was quite a blow and um, set me back and uh, get, really got me to thinking, well, what is he talking about? What is, why does he think I can't draw? What are these comic book artists doing that I'm not doing? So I had a lot of catching up to do, studying to do, um, and uh, I spent the next five years really honing my skills and, and trying to learn how to be a good comic book artist. Um, and so, you know, once I had invested all that time and energy into mastering this craft, I just kind of stuck with it. Your action sequences uh, are great, but my favorite parts of your work are just characters sitting around the table. Uh, there's that image of Stevie Hunter, like washing Karma's hair or like those little things where, where characters are just interacting that are, that are just gorgeous. I, uh, I love it so much. Gabriella, who is your favorite from the original New Mutants run? Which character? 
I'm also realizing, Gabriella, we've got four guys and a girl. You're our token Jean Grey today. <laughs> yeah, I get to be Jean. I was thinking that too when you were like, oh yeah, they always have like one girl. I'm like, well, yeah. you're, you're the correct. token female. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I'm not as familiar with New Mutants as I am with uh, X-Men, but I don't know. I feel like I want to say all of them, even though that's like kind of a, it sounds like a blow off answer, but I like the dynamic between every, I don't know. I just, I like them all. You did a good job, but says me who, you know, is not in the industry, but I just love it. I, uh, growing up, I had an enormous crush on Cannonball. Uh, I was a very quiet closeted teen and there's something about like his, he's the big brother. I had a big family. He had like the burden of responsibility. Uh, he, uh, he is a kind and conscientious and consistent person, but he was also really, really handsome. You drew images of him in New Mutants Annual One when he first meets Lila Cheney and he comes out in leather gear at one point. And I'm like, oh, hey, <laughs> teenage, me, teenage me was very pleased. Uh, tell us about your creation of Cannonball briefly. Yeah, well, first of all, let me just point out that um, my favorite things to draw are those scenes like uh, Stevie washing uh, Sean's hair and um, just people, superheroes doing normal things rather than, you know, fighting and acting heroic. It's it's much more fun, at least for me, to, to just draw humans doing human things. Um, so I, I always love the like the secondary characters uh, more than the heroes really. And when I designed the new mutants, I wanted them to look like you and me, um, just normal people who happen to have these abilities. I didn't want them to be handsome like Superman and, and, and beautiful like Wonder Woman. I wanted them to be more average, um, you know, but then still have some charm to them. Um, but Cannonball in particular, um, I kind of, you know, he, he changed over time. And, you know, after I left the book, different artists got on him and, and homogenized him quite a bit. But my original conception of him was to be kind of awkward looking and uh, just like a, a hillbilly type of character that uh, was not confident in the way he looked or moved or um, any anything like that. Um, and then, you know, I was, I was, my actually my first get to him, I was trying to decide, am I gonna have him be like bulky and, and muscular or are we gonna have him thinner or whatever? So I did a sketch of him real muscular and I just didn't like it all. And so then I did a version of him more streamlined and and just uh, kind of average tall, tall guy. Um, you know, and again, just big ears. I put funny big ears on him to try to get away from that Superman look. Um, and just kind of a kind of a big nose, not not at all your stereotypical handsome guy. Uh, and then when the when the book came out, the graphic novel came out, it was reviewed by the comics journal, and they talked about what an ugly group of superheroes they were, <laughs> because they didn't look like the standard, you know, handsome guys. Uh, which is what you were looking for. It sounds like in yeah, some ways. Yeah, exactly. Cannonball's power set is so interesting too. In a world where I feel like we repeat powers over and over and over again, this guy's ability to kind of blast himself through the sky with a force field. Uh, was it was it fun to come up with the designs for that, that, that power set? Yeah, I got to give credit uh, to Chris mainly for that. He, he It was his idea, uh, his conception of Cannonball, but then to have to decide exactly what that was going to look like um, was up to me. And um, 
we had a lot of fun with him, you know, not being able to control it and blasting into things and um, took him a while to actually be able to, to turn as he was blasting and to maneuver the way he wanted to. So we had a lot of fun with him. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Philip, are you familiar with the New Mutants at all? If so, uh, who's one of your favorite characters? I I think my first introduction was last summer. I was trying to do the Power of X's book club for Inferno. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we were doing a lot of gardening stuff. I had my career kickball league, so I didn't quite make it all the way through. Um, but I did enjoy um, Doug. Like, he's just stuck in this weird position of a not non-physical power um which if you're going out in the field and everything like you're more limited in what you can do but um yeah. now i think i think cypher or doug ramsey came along a little after you left uh bob oh, is that no. correct oh no no that's okay he's one of the earliest new mutants no that's okay and it's very interesting to hear that because you know he was killed off originally because the fans didn't like him everybody thought he was you know he's not a superhero. You know, so they, they didn't like the fact that he had such a subtle power. So to hear you single him out as, as uh, someone drawn to is, is really interesting to hear. Uh, are you following the curtain continuity in the comics at all right now, Bob? So um, I quit reading comics somewhere in the mid 2000s. Um, I did, well, even before that, comics started getting really dark and violent, um, far away from the comics uh, that I enjoyed and the way the business was when I entered it in the 70s, where we had all these different genres. We had Westerns and sci-fi and monsters and romance comics and you name it. And uh, the major publishers were, you know, had all these titles. And then it, it got more and more winnowed down into superheroes and then guys like Frank Miller came along and, and took this dark turn with the superheroes. And it's it just, it's not, you know, like I said, I started out in Mad Magazine. I'm much more interested in the lighter humorous stuff. Um, so I, I kind of lost interest in the comics and quit reading them and just started spending my reading time in, in uh, novels uh, rather than comics. I mean, it's, I would still enjoy comics. I just, uh, my local comic shop uh, wasn't that close and it just wasn't worth it to me to try it. You know, they used to send me a copy of every single comic they published, Marvel and DC uh, both. And I had this enormous collection, um, but then they stopped doing that uh, when in the nineties probably. And um, it was just, you know, not as easy to come by the comics. So I just kind of drifted away from them. In the current continuity, the X-Men have formed their own island nation on the living island of Krakoa. Do you remember Krakoa? Sure, uh, yeah. and, and Doug Ramsey, or Cypher, is the only person who can talk to Krakoa. So he's become a very central character in like the X-Men's government, which is really interesting. Uh, Cannonball has gone on to be an Avenger and a team leader. He's currently married to one of the Imperial Guard and has a superpowered baby in space. So. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> uh, it's uh, it's really fun to watch our characters grow uh, and age, uh, and and it's it must be interesting to hear things like this where you created these characters and they they've uh, uh, come such a, a long way since then. Oh my gosh, they've they've changed so much. I mean, look at all Danny Moonstar's gone through Valkyrie and everything. Um, uh, I, you know, I we intended all along to bring in new mutants into the new mutants and to have the characters. 
grow and change. And, uh, you know, so I knew they were going to be going through a lot of changes. Uh, but I kind of quit reading The New Mutants when I left the title because I didn't want to see how they were going to potentially mess up my babies, you know? Yeah, the the beautiful thing about the current run, Vita Ayala is drawing, or, or, or I'm sorry, scripting The New Mutants now. And there's a lot of really redemptive arcs. After years of really dark continuity, you're seeing characters go through healing uh, and and change. It's it's a really beautiful tonal shift. Uh, so you should be proud to have your cover on that book. It's a, a huge fan favorite right now. Uh, Daryl, yeah. who's your favorite from the original run? I think Cannonball. And um, something that's really great about being a comics fan and not um, following something from the beginning is you get to choose your own adventure when it comes to comics. So um, I was first exposed to the Guthrie's through um, Generation X and Page. And then uh, in preparation for chatting today, I read the New Mutants graphic novel. And it was so great because I have the omnibus. So um, those can be quite intimidating to tackle. Um, It's a thousand pages of comics just sitting on your shelf staring at you. So um, it was a great excuse to break out that omnibus and dive in. And I really love the characterizations and getting to know the characters, I think, pretty well within that first issue. It You do not need five issues to know who these characters are, what their power sets are, what's sort of motivating them. Um, it was a really beautiful piece to read, and I'm excited then carry it forward and get to know them even better. Um, but I think Cannonball, um, especially the changes he's gone through, I'm really drawn to um dynamic colors and um power sets as well so i mean he fits the bill with that um it and yeah i'm going to definitely dive in even more to them um as you said chad the current new mutants title is super popular and you get to see where they are now and i am a historian by nature so i want to see where they were before yeah uh, Bob, my second favorite, if I had to choose one, would be Wolf's Babe. Uh, I think because I grew up in a family that had a lot of religious guilt. <laughs> she, she's a character who, uh, for those that are unfamiliar, Rain Sinclair, who is from Scotland, who grew up with, it's implied that her mom is a prostitute, I believe. Her father is a preacher, but she doesn't know that. Uh, she's kind of ashamed for being a mutant her whole life until uh, Moira McTaggart uh, adopts her and she finds a home with new mutants. But she's someone who struggles with kind of piety and ethics and morality um, now, she's gone through some very dark turns uh, over the course of her continuity. But again, there's a lot of redemptive work being done with her now. Bob, tell us a little about your work with Wolfsbane or your creation of her. Yeah, she's one of my favorites. Um, you know, I like all of them, but um, she was fun to to create. And we went through uh, a lot of different looks for her. Um, I don't remember why particularly I came up with the look that I did with her. Um, I thought the, the short hair, uh, because to keep her looking kind of wolfish as a human, um, if she had long hair, and I did a, an original design of her with long hair, it just didn't work. Um, so I, I liked the little uh, short uh, haircut uh, I gave her, and then I wanted her to be a little more, um, I don't know, sexy is the right word, but just a fuller figure um, as opposed to 
Danny Moonstar, who I uh, pictured as, as an athletic uh, Native American who would maybe be running a lot and um, uh, be slender. Um, so I had these different body types in mind. I just like the faces, I try to uh, always make my characters have individual body styles um, so that they, again, are more like real people instead of just stereotypes. Um, uh, so I really enjoyed coming up with Rain. And, um, you know, I'm from a Southern Baptist uh, upbringing and I overthrew my religion somewhere around junior high school. And um, I'm, I'm not religious now, but I know what you mean about about the guilt and and uh, all of that. Uh, so I could identify with Rain a little bit too. I uh, I grew up in the Missouri Ozarks uh, as a Mormon kid, and all the Southern Baptists would ask me questions like, "Do you have horns on the back of your head?" Like, <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> but I over yeah I got rid of those uh, belief systems a long time ago too. Uh, and, and you just mentioned uh, Danny Moonstar or Mirage, who is uh, an iconic X character that people love, love, love. Um, there's some talk about her potentially being bisexual, but what she represents as a character who has her own power and who has been on her own journey as such a strong individual and a leader for so many years. Uh, she's just an incredible, incredible character. Uh, she has a, a difficult power to draw in some ways, uh, but yes, your, portrayal, your portrayal of her right from the beginning was amazing. Uh, tell us a little about your work with her and how you drew those powers. <laughs> I, like I say, it's tough. Mental powers, um, you know, back then too, it was before computers, Anytime you wanted to do some kind of uh, aura around somebody's head, it had to be done on an overlay if you wanted it printed in color instead of black line. So I always doing these overlays for her powers, um, which is a kind of a hassle. And I would, sometimes I would do them on ink on acetate, which acetate is a little hard to ink on, um, or vellum paper and vellum wasn't totally transparent. So again, kind of hard to work with. Um, Pre-computer days, you know, every, everything was very different than it is today. Um, we had these flat colors to work with. Um, but I, I kind of took to her image right away. Um, I didn't go, you know, I didn't do a lot of study about different native tribes um, and, and what they might actually wear. I just, uh, figured I couldn't go wrong with um, braids for her hairstyle. And um, I originally had her in a, in a fringe leather jacket. Um, and I think maybe Louise or, or Chris um, thought, you know, we didn't need that. Um, and I think Chris might've been the one to suggest a, like a belt, uh, some Native American design belt for her to wear. Um, so, you know, we kind of developed her look um, and I was always really happy with the way she looked. I like her, her look. I think the character that surprises me most from the original run, which should be Wolvesbane is actually Sunspot. We've got uh, Roberto da Costa, Brazilian soccer player, cocky little kid who has a, a big heart and a sarcastic nature, uh, but his power set shocks me so much when he, uh, he absorbs solar radiation and he turns into kind of a crackling dark ebony black color as he wields this very powerful energy. Uh, he's another character who's gone through a ton of changes uh, over the years. He's been an Avenger. He's a billionaire now. Uh, 
Uh, recently, this may surprise you, Bob. He's been dating Deathbird of the Shi'ar, the uh, the sister of Lalandra. If you remember Deathbird, I do. Yeah, that's that is surprising. Yeah. <laughs> uh, tell us a little bit about your your creation of Sunspot. Yeah, Sunspot. When we were first uh, thinking about him, we didn't know if we were going to have him like enlarge when he used his powers and get big like the Hulk. But we decided, well, there's already a Hulk. We don't need to duplicate the Hulk, so let's keep him little. And um, he, again, he's supposed to be like my height, uh, even shorter than me, maybe five, six. Um, he's not supposed to be a, a big, tall, handsome guy. He's supposed to be this little feisty guy who maybe has an attitude because of his height, in addition to his uh, dark skin, um, giving him a little bit of a chip on his shoulder around other people and, and you know, certain people. Um, so he was... Uh, he's one of my favorites just for his personality. Um, as far as his looks, you know, back at the time we designed him, that Kirby crackle, the little black dots was popular in comics. Um, so we kind of uh, decided to use that to emphasize his solar powers. You know, we didn't want him bursting into flame like the human torch. Um, so we had to kind of give him his own look and a I always like silhouettes, um, so uh, I thought a silhouette look for him was a good idea. Um, but when I drew him, of course, I would I would always draw his body and then just black it in. I didn't just try to draw him as a silhouette because then you don't really get a sense, a three dimensional sense of of him. Um, but as as you're posing him, you have to be aware that. You can't see his arms if he puts them in front of his body. So you always have to think about uh, a way of posing him uh, that reads well. Um, so he was he was always interesting and fun for me. He's a great character. And his interplay with Cannonball over the years is fantastic. Oh, look at his X-Force costume. That's fantastic. Uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, they actually, in uh, the Marvel Legends series, include the Crackle. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, the action figure, got, which is really cool. So, yeah, I've got that little toy myself. That's fantastic. Your uh, your early books, even even in the very first appearance of the New Mutants, tackle issues like racism uh, so beautifully. There, there's a lot of really powerful uh, themes that show up that are bigger than just the mutant human diversion. But right from the very first issue, uh, uh, Sunspot or Roberto is teased for having darker skin and for dating a lighter skinned uh, Brazilian girl. Uh, so those themes and how they show up, I think are really representative of people. It's really powerful that those choices were made. And I know Chris puts a lot of work into that, but your art so beautifully uh, captured all of that as well. Yeah, thanks. Um, all credit to Chris for that. You know, that's that's all Chris coming up with those uh, ideas and you got to hand it to him. You know, he was kind of a pioneer in the comic book uh, realm with with that stuff. Uh, wasn't wasn't a lot ahead of him. Uh, and he does it so well, like like you say. So it was always a pleasure uh, working from his plots. Um, he would give me so much plot in those issues. Um, and I told him, Chris, you know, I, I can't jam all this stuff into 22 pages. Uh, you know, I need to edit some of this stuff down a little bit. And he said, that's fine. I'd rather give you too much rather than too little. Um, so he never minded me kind of working, reworking his plots to make them work visually uh, in, in my estimation. Uh, so I always thought we worked uh, really well together. He was a, he was a easy person 
from my point of view to work with. Uh, were you guys using the Marvel method back then? Yeah, Chris, uh, most of my, my career, I, everybody I worked with was pretty much the Marvel method. Um, but Chris's plots, as I said, he puts a lot in, in there. Um, they're pretty complete, but it's not like a finished script. I don't know exactly what the characters are gonna be saying. He would give me uh, an idea of what they, were, what they might be saying maybe, um, or just generally what was gonna be happening but he didn't nail it down and um, he never would say, I want a close up here and a long shot there. And I want you, you know, doing this. He, he didn't give me art direction. Uh, he would just give me what was happening and let me decide how to show it, um, which I think is the best way to work. Because if you if you give an artist a finished script where you're trying to direct them uh and tell them when to use close-ups and stuff I, I just i think artists tend to have a better visual sense than writers uh so you ought to let the artist contribute that visual sense um so i i always preferred the marvel method now the only character in the original the mutants that you did not create because she had uh, debuted in marvel team up previously uh is karma or sean Kwai Mon, who's one of the very first uh prominent Asian characters in the comics. Uh, in X-Men, I think Sunfire is the only one that really preceded uh, her. Uh, Sean has the power to possess people and she has that iconic kind of, uh, I don't even know what you call that, a little pink, yeah. <laughs> pink head circle <laughs> that goes, a little pink halo that goes above people's heads. Uh, she's got a very tragic backstory and very complex family issues. Uh, and I, uh, I got to inform Bob when we were connecting over email. Uh, I told him this was kind of a queer themed podcast and that Karma has come out as lesbian, which I think was news to you at the time. Uh, tell us a little bit about your reaction to that and about your work with Karma back at the beginning. Well, again, you know, everything like that just makes characters more interesting. Um, and, you know, in the movie, uh, they had kind of a romance. Was it between Danny and Rain uh, a little bit, um, which surprised me? uh a lot more than than uh sean did um i mean i when i was drawing her i wasn't thinking of her as gay but then how would i have thought of her any differently i don't think it would have made a difference um i would have drawn her the same way um i, I don't know but uh, yeah, yeah she, didn't, she didn't come out for a long time so, <laughs> <laughs> so she may not have known it either <laughs> yeah i mean certainly there's a at that time, certainly, and and even today, there was a there's a need for more uh, gay characters, more um, multi still more multicultural characters, uh, more Asian characters. Uh, I don't know how far they've gone with Hispanic characters. There's so many Hispanic readers of comics, um, Latino readers, Latina readers. Um, I I don't know if they've gone far enough in that direction and. Uh, I, I know for a fact that a lot of African-Americans don't read comics because there's not enough representation of them in comics. Uh, so there's still, all of that needs to be developed further. Um, and, you know, up, in, up until recent times, it, it was always in the early days a, a kind of a boys club in comics. Uh, there was like, just, you could count them on one hand, the number of women that worked in comics, Marie Severin and, and uh, Whoever uh, and Linda fight, and there wasn't very there wasn't very many back at the beginning. Seriously, a handful of them, uh, and then gradually Weezy came in, uh, Louise Simonson, 
and uh, Ann Nocenti, Joe Duffy, um, you know, they, they kind of just slowly entered the field. Uh, some women artists started coming in. Uh, finally, editors and women writers and, and whatever. Uh, so that changed. Uh, there may have been some gay people in comics when I got in, but they weren't mostly out of the closet, maybe. I know there was, uh, I don't want to name them because I could be wrong, but there were maybe two <laughs> guys I knew of that were gay at the time. Uh, that we're working in comics. Marvel is not only uh, putting a huge push toward queer characters and characters of color and characters of various ethnicities right now, but also creators. The The X-Men creative lineup right now has a lot of uh, uh, queer and people of color and female uh, writers and artists working across the board. Uh, but it's only really been in the last five years that we've seen that taking place, uh, which is a right, wonderful yeah. thing. And I think it's created an entirely different community of readers, frankly, because there's a safety in seeing yourself represented in these pages. I think- Exactly, which is one of the big reasons why we needed that. You know, you yeah. want everyone to be reading these things. So you need to put everyone creating them and, and uh, involved in them. Yeah, I think, you know, speaking uh, on behalf of all queer people, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, but I think, you know, I, I could find myself in the pages of the X-Men for many years, but it was never stated these characters are queer. It was implied mystique and destiny, as an example. There were implications, but they never came out and said it. It wasn't safe. But now we're seeing it said. Uh, Destiny's back. She and Mystique are married and they're a couple. And we get to see these things that were hinted for so long as, as really beautiful portrayals of uh, relationships in, in the comics. It's a wonderful thing. Has anyone ever been established as the first openly gay character in comics? North Star was the first Marvel character uh, that came out publicly. North Star from Alpha Flight, uh, right. which was which was in the mid nineteen nineties, and then you know Iceman has come out since then, so he's the oh, first really? one in the X Men. Uh, Iceman is gay, uh, and and has a, a relationship. Uh, he, his boyfriend is Emma Frost's little brother. So <laughs> there's all kinds of stuff happening in the comics now, which is great. All right. Um, Daryl, do you have any questions you'd like to ask Bob today? Yeah, so uh, um, you obviously have done tons of covers, even more issues. Um, and just like you co-created the New Mutants and then passed it off to someone else, when you are brought onto a book where it's not a character you originated, how do you view caretaking for those characters? How did you handle them when they were in your responsibility? You know, that's changed over the decades. When I was uh, the peak of my career, kind of in the 80s, um, you they didn't want you to put your own stamp on those characters too much. Peter Parker had to look like John Romita's Peter Parker. And if he didn't, John Romita would go over your artwork and make him look like his Peter Parker. Yeah. Um, so I was trained um, basically to do the characters the way people were used to seeing them instead of trying to make them look the way I wanted them to look. Nowadays, artists come on a book and just feel free to, you know, take over and make them, give them different costumes and, and make their hair different or whatever. And that's great. Um, but when I was doing them, um, I was much more uh, restrained in how far I would differ their look. I might make Spider-Man's little things flip up more than they did with Steve Ditko or whatever. 
Um, but it, I didn't stray too far from their accepted usual looks. And when I say the usual looks, even then there were differences, of course, but I had my favorite artists, uh, John Buscema. Uh, so I would kind of do things the way John would do them or um, at DC, Neil Adams. Um, if I was gonna draw a DC character, I would kind of look at what Neil did with them. When Neil did the X-Men, you know, I just loved the way he drew the X-Men. So I would have done them basically the same way. Um, I had a great time when I uh, did an issue of the New Mutants uh, that had the Sentinels in it for the first time. I got to design my own Sentinels. So that was fun. And yeah, beautiful work. I have, uh, I'll be posting some images uh, of, of those Sentinel designs. Uh, uh, Philip, Gabriella, do you guys want to ask, ask uh, Bob any questions? Um, yeah, I was just wondering, so you mentioned a little bit about your preferred style, that you were more influenced by mad and by comedy and caricatures and things like that, and that you prefer to not um, do like overly violent comics. Um, I'm just wondering if your style, if you felt that it's changed over the years, or if when given the opportunity to do, to use different styles of comics, um, illustration, if you've sort of discovered other kinds of genres that you like, or if that's, I don't know, been different over the years? Yeah, I mean, any artist, uh, our styles develop over time. Um, I mean, I was I was given a miniseries to do a Venom, uh, Marvel's character Venom, yeah, yeah. which is a horror comic and not at all in my uh, wheelhouse. Uh, but I was able to pencil and ink it, uh, which is what I wanted to do my whole career was ink my own pencils. And I, with the deadlines, it was always a, an issue. So I was, I was very happy to be able to ink my own pencils on Venom and decided to try to do my very best work on that miniseries. And I think it's some of my best work, uh, but it's not at all, you know, Venom and Morbius were not characters that I particularly enjoyed drawing, uh, but, but I, did a style that I, I thought worked for them. Um, when I was working on Superman, totally opposite. It was more of a clean cut uh, look for that series. So I tried to uh, use a style that worked uh, for Superman, which is you know a little different than uh, what I would do for say Spider-Man or, or the, the X-Men or whatever. So, you know, being a commercial artist, I, I try to tailor the, the style of the art to whatever the demands of the job are. I don't, I don't want to impose one style on all these different things because they're each one of these projects is, has their own demands. There's an iconic story, uh, Bob, that I, I've never heard from you directly, but you were on your honeymoon when New Mutants <laughs> was starting, right? Can you tell us that story? Yeah. Um, when we, when I first started on the New Mutants, it was going to be a regular comic book series. Um, but at the same time, Marvel was starting off with their graphic novel line and they were looking for projects to turn into graphic novels. Um, so I was maybe, I forget exactly, but maybe five pages into the first issue and uh, we decided to make it into a graphic novel. Well, with the comic, it wasn't scheduled yet because it was a new series and I was going to have all this time to put my very best effort into it and make it my, my uh, crowning achievement so far in my career. And then when it became a graphic novel, 
they they had a different schedule and it was already slotted in. It had a certain uh, deadline. And because they were had been searching for a project, suddenly we were behind schedule instead of ahead of schedule. And so it was just rush, rush, rush from the, from the very start. And um, I was I was penciling on it, and and they said, Bob, we're gonna we're gonna have to give this to uh, another inker in order to meet this deadline. And I said, Oh no, it's a it's a graphic novel. I mean, you gotta let me ink this myself. Um, and I remember too, I started my career inking rather than penciling, and the inking was really important to me. Um, you know, that's the that's the artwork that gets printed in the comic. Uh, the inker has the final say on what the art looks like. Um, so I really wanted to be inking that myself. And they said, well, you know, I, I don't know what you're going to do. And, and then, um, you know, just coincidentally, I uh, met this woman and fell in love and uh, we got married and it coincided with the, with the uh, deadline for the new mutant. So um, I ended up having to work during my honeymoon, <laughs> but we luckily my wife had a friend who owned a uh, cottage on the beach in Florida and she let us stay there for a month. So I had a month long honeymoon and I would be, you know, working uh, furiously on the new mutants during the day while my wife was out sunning herself on the beach and then we'd be together at night. So, uh, you know, it's fine. Um, but yeah, I had a lot, a lot of fast work to do while I was on my honeymoon. Are you two still married? Yes, we are. <laughs> how, how long have you been together? Oh, gosh. Well, we got married in 82. So 40 years. So 40 years of marriage, 40 years of these characters changing the lives and hearts of people. Uh, what an incredible, incredible career. And what an incredible impact you've had, perhaps bigger than you realize. Uh, I, these, these characters, especially just in the last 10 or 15 years, have gone on to create storylines and venues and safe spaces for people to lose themselves in worlds of fiction and see themselves presented in spaces. Uh, we have a team coming out. We interviewed Steve Orlando a few weeks ago. He's launching a new X-Men team. The you, you talked about the New Mutants being the majority uh, of women. Uh, his team is majority queer characters and people of color. And we're seeing new new initiatives come out, and they're all these beloved characters that are still uh, still resonating in the hearts of people, and they probably will be for for long after I'm gone too. You know, uh, thank you, thank you for your incredible and beautiful work. I'm a huge, huge fan. You know, it's it's so humbling and staggering to think of the impact uh, that our work has on people. You know, when we're doing these comics, uh, especially back then, we weren't. Well, when I started, there wasn't that much of a fan uh, market. You know, there was Phil Suling's New York convention and maybe San Diego Con had started back then. Um, you didn't have the rapport with your fans that we do now with uh, Facebook and, and Instagram and Twitter. Um, so there was a lag time between what we would do and where we might get a fan letter months later uh, about anything we did. Um, so we didn't really think much about what impact it was having. When I was drawing the New Mutants, I didn't know what the fans were thinking. Um, I didn't, if if I'd known what a big success it was going to be, I probably would have stayed on the book longer. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I didn't, I didn't really know. And I wasn't happy with the way the art was looking because I was so rushed on it all the time. Um, but I, I began it, you know, when I, when I, uh, 
got royalties for the graphic novel. My wife and I kind of took a second honeymoon and went to uh, Paris and London. Um, and I saw the the New Mutants over in the bookstand, bookstore stands in Paris. And I said, oh my gosh, these are around the world. And it was, you know, really eye-opening to, to realize uh, just exactly what I was doing and how it was, you know, being presented around the world. It was really, uh, like I say, humbling. Uh, it's, I'm so lucky to have had this career where people come up to me at cons and just break into tears sometimes about what how important it was uh, to have the new mutants when they were teenagers themselves and struggling with these issues. Um, and they identified so much with these characters. Um, you know, it's just, it's something. When, uh, when I ask, I, I brought this up on the podcast before, but when I ask straight fans, who are your favorite X-Men characters? They're like, oh, Cyclops, Wolverine, Claws and Blasts, you know. But when I ask queer people, it's, you know, Rogue or or any of the characters who have to wrestle with something. You know, Rogue has this power, but she can't touch anybody. Uh, Wolvesbane might come up or we see these characters who have to really carry the weight of something with them. And when you see that represented, it's not just a Batman book. You know, it's a it's something else entirely. Uh, and yet and you've had a you've had a profound impact um, on characters that we love and on an industry that that we adore. <laughs> like the X-Men is a whole franchise for people. I tell you, I'm just very uh, glad that I'm able to be a part of that. Um, it, it makes me have a pride in my work that uh, would be less if that wasn't the case. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's great. Now, are, are, are your friends back for dinner? Or do you want to hang out? Yeah, with I was going to say, can I take five minutes and just tell them what we're doing and then I can come back? Yeah, yeah. So I think we're just going to start issue review and then just come rejoin us. Does that sound okay? Yeah. All right. I'll yeah. be right back. Yeah, that sounds great. Uh, so while, while Bob is doing that, we're going to we're going to talk a little bit about X-Men number 38 today. Uh, so X-Men 38 came out in uh, it is the part two of the Factor three trilogy after a year of buildup. Uh, these characters have been simmering in the background. We finally have the big revelations the book has also had a lot of really silly tones for a long time. And this issue, these three issue arc things get very, very serious. Uh, we we see the mutant theme like as the other returning in a big way for the first time really since the Sentinels arc, which is quite some time ago now. So this book was published in November 1967. Uh, it's called The Sinister Shadow of Doomsday, which is so ominous. Uh, written by Roy Thomas, penciled by Don Heck, inked by George Bell, and lettered by L.P. Gregory. And I like to take deep dives back into the past. L.P. Gregory was the pen name for a D.C. letterer uh, by the name of Gaspar Saladino, who lived from 1927 through 2016. He worked as a letterer and logo designer for mostly D.C., often uh, Marvel, for like more than 60 years. We saw a lot of people, when they were working for other companies, adopting uh, like pen names of some kind. Uh, uh, Werner Roth did that quite frequently uh, as well. Um, so let's uh, let's jump into the book a little bit and talk a little about the the cover initially. What were you guys thinking of this cover on uh, X Men number thirty seven? I'm sorry, X Men number thirty eight. Any thoughts on this cover, the portrayal? Oh well, um, uh, there's definitely. Um, some wrestling going along uh, on. Um, Angel is getting squeezed by the blob. Um, it looks like he would fit in in a wrestling ring with like just the trunks. Yeah, and it was very odd. 
Beast feet are prominent. Oh yeah, that's a that's a thing in this issue. It was beast feet. Hashtag beast feet. Oh my god, like twelve times he mentioned his goddamn feet. Yeah, <laughs> and it's tootsies. Like yeah. I've never I hadn't really heard that so much for feet before. Was, I oh, literally god. wrote down in my notes. Please mention that they say tootsies instead of feet at the beginning. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and um, Jean is actually. Um, very active on the cover, which I'm glad to see because sometimes she is very much relegated to the damsel on the side on these covers, but she's actually um, kicking a little butt, and I appreciate that. The uh, the costume of the Vanisher is nonsense. <laughs> Bob, we were just talking about the cover of uh, X-Men 38. Did you have any thoughts on the cover at all or the way it's portrayed? It's... Um, Click back here. I have it on the last page. Let me click back to the. Um, I just wanted to comment how different uh, this comic is from the comics that I'm familiar with. Um, uh, and I, I, like I say, I don't read the latest comics, but as I quit reading them, they had changed so much from this, where this is so much story packed into this small number of pages. Um, compared to later comics. Um, and the style of art, of course, radically different. I, I was noticing uh, Don Heck, I think, was the artist for this issue. And he was trying to do kind of a Kirby uh, style to the art. Um, it was very interesting to look at. This, this cover, um, I don't think you would see uh, a main character looking as awkward as Angel does here on a on a new cover. Um, I mean, they've just changed everything about the way they do comics. Um, it's just kind of a fun. I, I like the way the beast is leaping in there. It's kind of a fun cover. Uh, Vanisher shooting him right in the butt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Vanisher's colors change because at one point they said like the crimson clad villain or something. And I was like, wait, am I missing something? Or is there someone else here? Because he's in green. And then. <laughs> so this is, this is only the Vanisher's third appearance. And in his first one, he's colored in like a red suit and then it turns kind of greenish. Uh, but yeah, it's terrible regardless. <laughs> his little snake skin costume. Amazing. And like the whole uh, rough around him around his head yeah it's uh it's it's very like colonial george washington if it was white like <laughs> he's like a court barrister or something um now in this issue one of the big changes that takes place and we, we talked to roy thomas a little while back the, the x-men were flailing a little sales wise and they're trying some new things and as we get into the upcoming issues every issue feels like a completely different series it's nuts uh, as we move into the the issues in the numbers of, of the 40s uh, but one of the things that's a big change in this is we start getting a backup feature feature. So the main story is only 15 pages and then they go back and they're telling the origin stories of the X-Men for the last five. Some of the stories are really impressive. Today's is kind of cool, but in some of the <laughs> issues upcoming, they're not so great. Uh, we'll talk about that as we get to them. Uh, Gabriella, do you want to uh, take some time to sum up the first five pages of the issue for us? Tell us what happens as we open 38. Yeah, sure. So it starts out the way that 37 ended, I think, which is um, the mutant master uh, talking to them and making the X-Men very scared and being very menacing. Um, and I just like how Jean, everybody's like, wow, this is really scary. And she just says that he seems really confident 
which like I just find is a very funny observation about the whole situation. Like it almost seems like she's impressed, but I know she's not. But it just is like a weird thing to say. As the um, villain threatens nuclear war, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and then they um they end up flying off the planet because Beast was like, "This planet's gonna explode." I can feel it in my tootsies. And when he talks about how his feet could tell the vibrations that there was a bomb and they're like, no, there's not. And then there was. And so they're like, wow, we really, <laughs> we really need to trust your feet from now on. Like, that was like how they said it, which I think is really funny. Again. Can, um, we, can we please just create a mutant whose superpower is to detect vibrations through their feet? That's, the, that's all they can do. <laughs> I mean, clearly they did. He, he just really knows what's going on. He was established before that he had such sensitive toes. Uh, he always talks about his giant feet, but the sensitivity, I don't think is something that they've emphasized. No. Yeah. And then after he's like, uh, yeah, I told you that was going to happen. Cyclops is like, well, we're not going to talk about that right now. The planet just exploded behind us. It's like (laughs) typical, um, and then uh, they fly off, and after that, I'm sorry, I'm trying to turn the page. They, they steal Factor Three's ship, uh, which is an yeah. egg, which is an egg shaped ship, egg shaped ship. And I have to wonder if it's connected to Nanny at all from the Hellions. Nanny has her egg ship, right? Like I, I want, that. I don't know. I'm looking for a correlation here. Yeah. So um, they decide to go back to the school. And then we see um, Mutant Master and Changeling, and they have a little villain conversation about how the teenagers escaped, basically, but nothing has really changed. And the vibe is basically that Mutant Master is like, oh, it looks like we lost, but we didn't. And that's kind of what he does throughout. And then Changeling is like, so like that explosion, I wasn't expecting it. Why did that happen? And then uh, Mutant Master kind of does like a a shock of some kind or like, I couldn't figure out what it was visually, but it says zap. And so I think it was like a long distance tase. I don't know. I couldn't really see. <laughs> but um. And he's like that, and it was like really close to Changeling. And he's like, don't question me again. And Changeling was like, oh crap, I'm not gonna question you again because that was really scary. And then, uh, but he just says like, okay, yes sir, do you need anything else? And then he goes kind of on a villain monologue about how ultimately he really wants, it's his master plan to make the world it, like go into nuclear warfare and then the mutants will be all that's left after nuclear war and then he is going to be in charge of the mutants after that but they don't know that yet so um i do just want to say it's a little spooky that we're reading this now um with everything going on in russia and ukraine it gave me a real weird feeling like hearing about how they were like gonna do like nuclear winter and stuff but anyway, uh, other than that, um, let me see. The last page that I have is um, they, he does another show of strength against Changeling where he does sonic waves. 
And then Changeling is like, turn it off. And he's like, well, now you're going to be loyal to me. So who really wins here? And then... Um, we're gonna talk. We're gonna talk more about Changeling in the coming weeks. Uh, but he's a very yeah. obscure character from the '60s. People don't know. Uh, we're gonna get some stuff. And this is spoilers. I mean, this is this is sixty-year-old spoilers. But in a few issues, Professor X dies. But it's not actually Professor X. It's Changeling posing as Professor X. And they know specifically in this issue that we don't know Changeling's power set. Uh, now later, many many years, we get to see him emphasized in the Age of Apocalypse and in the X-Men cartoons uh, as the character Morph. And he also is a huge part of the Exiles series, Morph. So if you know Morph, this is who he's based off of. We get a very sober moment with Changeling as he's thinking about all of this. And I'm gonna read his thoughts out loud briefly on page five. He says, the master grows more intolerably arrogant with each passing minute. We mutants agreed to serve him out of hatred for normal hu humans because of their fear and hostility towards us. Yet we have merely exchanged our roles as outcasts. Have we exchanged our roles as outcasts for those of slaves? But we shall consider that later when the world of Homo sapiens lies in smoldering radioactive ruins. Uh, so we get this really interesting idea of these outcasts who feel like they have been forced to stand against humans. Like uh, they have to fight this war in order to survive, which is kind of Magneto's idea, right? We're going to seize our power. Uh, but he's also recognizing maybe we're going too far. And we're not going to see that pointed out for a little while until Professor X goes, wait a minute, if you guys have nuclear war, what's going to be left for the mutants anyway? Uh, uh, Bob, what did you think of the design on Changeling's costume? <laughs> <laughs> that is a strange costume. I don't know what's supposed to be going on with his headgear there. <laughs> I had never seen this character before. You know, I wasn't reading comics in the 60s, um, so I never saw all these early X-Men comics. Um, so it was fun for me reading this comic uh, before the show and his his outfit there is pretty far out. Yeah, that it's iconic headgear. Something, there's something, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, uh, I, like, I kind of like that it isn't red, yellow, or blue, you know, you know, navy blue because, um, you know, Stan always wanted everything uh, primary colors because he thought they sold better. Um, but it, it's not good coloring. You know, it's kind of like kid coloring. Um, it's interesting that they put that magenta in there on his costume, kind of the way they did the Sentinels in the X-Men. Um, maybe they got the idea for them from this guy. I don't know. He's like a little mini Galactus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, Bob, that's one of the reasons we're doing this podcast is nobody's read the 60s stuff. Like we have these characters that we've established, but nobody's read this stuff. It's fun. Uh, Daryl, do you want to take pages six through 10 for us? Tell us what happens next. Yeah. And at the tail end of Gabriella's portion, there is a footnote um, for some ham radio addicts that this operates <laughs> on a frequency that can only be heard by dogs and mutants. So... I think if anyone ever wanted to defeat the X-Men, just get some dog whistles. Books. No, 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 no. It's better than that. It's only dogs and evil mutants. Oh, that, oh. Yeah, I don't know how they did that. I wonder what, I wonder, <laughs> you know, the people who switch sides all the time. Ham Radio Man, let me note really quickly. If, you, if you've ever read Avengers number one, the reason the team forms in the first place is the Hulk is on a rampage and Rick Jones has a team called the Teen Brigade and they're all ham radio enthusiasts. And they send out a signal like, we need help against the Hulk. And Loki takes the, the ham radio signal and disperses it and sends it to a bunch of other heroes who then gather to fight the Hulk. That's how the Avengers form in the first place, over the fucking ham radio. <laughs> <laughs> 
bunch of nerds. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah um, and the teen and the teen brigade, which of course is amazing. <laughs> um, speaking of nerds, we cut to the X-Men planning how they are going to um, divide and conquer. So they need to prevent nuclear holocaust and also save Professor X and Banshee. So we they take off in their um, egg-shaped babies as it's and and they're really discs. Um, maybe it's like a fried egg shape they're thinking of rather than <laughs> oil. Um, so they both go off as separate teams, and um, we see predominantly Jean, who has a really good hair day in this issue. Um, Beast and Angel are going to go avert nuclear war, but they have to go behind the Iron Curtain to do so. And they know that there is a bomb planted in this meeting of all these high-ranking generals. So they go with that knowledge in mind, but they're mistaken as, oh, these mutants are here to assassinate our generals. So a fight ensues, there's a scuffle. And um, at the end of it, we see that, oh, what's the term for them? It's the lackeys for the mutant master who are going to be Blob. Vanisher. Unis is there, which is um, probably the most creative name, I think, for a villain is just U-N-U-S, Unis. Um, He's one. He is one. He, he's one of something. Um, uh, and they reveal themselves as being there ready to take on this strike team um, after they have to sort of beat up these soldiers who were defending the generals. Um, we then cut to some dialogue between Professor X and Changeling and Changeling is very proud of his machine that can keep um, Charles immobilized, but he can still talk. Um, very, it, it doesn't seem like that big of a feat in terms of a trap. It, you, you could have just tied him down and it would have done the same thing. He could still talk. <laughs> and then <laughs> Professor, a- Professor X is giving him lip and he receives a backhand like no other on page nine, just um, a whack from Changeling, who's not having any of it. And um, I think we can effectively call that a bitch slap. Uh, I think so. And as as unfortunate as it is, it's a little bit satisfying to see Charles get hit across the face. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Um, And Changeling, throughout this conversation, he gets snuck up on by the mutant master. And he's like, oh, I forgot that you can actually move. Thing where the mutant master somehow relied on Changeling to go from point A to point B. And that's why Changeling was like, you rely on me. I'm more important than you're treating me. And the mutant master is like, no, no, they're not. Yeah. Exactly. Well, and spoilers for next issue. The mutant master is a giant octopus tentacle alien. Uh, so we'll see more. We'll talk more about this next week. <laughs> And uh, the last page of my section, we're cutting to the other strike team, which is Cyclops and Iceman going to the American side of things, trying to say, okay, you need to trust us on this. It sounds a little crazy, but um, we we need you to go ahead and help us out and uh, um, team up with us. And they're like, what? You're, you're some teenagers. 
we're not gonna do this. Also, how did like for teenagers to get into a nuclear base? In- yeah. <laughs> how? How? I have so many questions about how. Yeah, and we do get um, to round out in the last page of mine. We get some bracka bracka um, for the gunshots, which is one of my favorite Marvel sound effects. Is bracka. <laughs> I actually think the lettering in this issue is really impressive. They do, they yeah. do a great job. Now, I'm going to define a couple terms really quickly, and we're not going to take a deep dive here, but post-World War II America, there was kind of a division of space. And, and the most easy space to see that was in Berlin, Germany. There's literally a, a wall built. People on the east side are in communist territory. People on the west side are not. Uh, so there's a lot of Cold War stuff that developed. There's Russia versus the U.S. and whoever your allies with on either side oversimplifying things, but there's a few terms tossed around in here. One of them being the iron curtain. That was like the wall or the the invisible line that divided the East from the West. We also see reference to Checkpoint Charlie, which was a gate in the Berlin wall where people could pass through. Uh, We see the term panty waste, which is not something we often (laughs) see now, but back in the 60s, that meant feeble or effeminate. So we see that used as an insult here. Uh, And then we see the word gendarme, which is like a French soldier. Now, the X-Men are fighting soldiers in Eastern Europe. Luckily, they all speak English. (laughs) But But we see them confronting the American military who fight them and don't trust them and confronting the communist military who fight them and don't trust them. Uh, so, uh, Bob, I don't know if this is a presumptive question, but did this take you back to news stories of, of uh, years ago uh, when, when you see this kind of heightened portrayal of Cold War America uh, in place here? Yeah, you know, I lived through uh, the Cold War and uh, frightening times. Um, it was interesting reading this, uh, talking about the Iron Curtain. Um yeah, you know, it's glad though. Well, now we're kind of coming back into a new Cold War in recent times. So, uh, circular history. Um, we're in some interesting times right now as well. Um, it's getting scary recently. Um, but listen, <clears throat> Chad, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to go. No, that's 100% okay. Thank you. Thank you for being here with us today. Well, I've really enjoyed it, and uh, it, you guys have a great podcast, and it's it's been a lot of fun for me. So, thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Enjoy your dinner, and I will uh, I'll send you an email a little later. Okay, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you, uh, uh, Philip. Do you want to continue with uh, page eleven? Yeah. So we are continuing on with the plan that the the X Men had hatched on their own, where. Uh, Cyclops and Iceman take the American base, and their goal is to destroy the missiles. Because if Mutant Master is going to gas this base and ha- send the missiles over, they can't do that if there are no missiles left. So that's the big conflict that is brewing. Um, Cyclops is trying to hold off the soldiers who are trying to stop them, but like in a in a, a nice like non-lethal way, like oh, we could do a, like a shot across the bow sort of thing to stop these kids and. Um, Iceman is sort of pushing himself to both defend himself and destroy the missiles. Um, and he says, um, Iceman says, there are hundreds of missiles here. How are they not inflicting any casualties while they are taking out hundreds of missiles? Oh, is it just that they're freezing the mechanism? No? I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of things that could go wrong. Like, mm-hmm. as we, so I read the previous issue to try to figure out what exactly was happening with this. And their solution to getting out of the predicament before was to melt some icicles and that short-circuited the evil ray. 
So maybe ice is all it takes. Well, I also feel like the X-Men have had a lot of practice against missiles, not only in the danger room, but Magneto loved himself some giant missiles. He would like grab them and throw them at the X-Men, big purple missiles all the time in the early days. So they've had some practice. Oh, so that explains the throwback in one of the Pride issues where Iceman is having some feelings and Magneto, like, you can see all these missiles that he's holding in the background. And he's like, oh, I can't drop these on a crying kid. <laughs> like, the missiles go off again in the distance. Yeah, there's a, there's a, in fact, X-Men number one, they fight Magneto at a missile base. Like, he's trying to take over this base and they're like, no, not the missiles. And like, they come back again and again. Magneto was a little obsessed back then. Um. And then we go to the other team. Uh, Angel and Jean Grey have been separated from Beast. Beast was trying to distract the guards on the ground floor. Angel took Jean upstairs to try and talk the way out, say there's a bomb here, we need to get out. Um, sort of like this two-pronged attack, a two-pronged plan to foil the mutant master. But there's Blob there, there's Banisher, there's some henchmen, and they work, Jean and Angel work really well together. Like she somehow helps Angel get past the blob. Um, and then this, then he hits him. There's a thrum. There is a thrum. Um, but yeah, Jean says, but at least Angel got away. So their teamwork is on point. Um, and they do a weird thing with Banisher where they keep referencing, like they just spin him around in the air so he gets disoriented and can't teleport. Um, but he does end up getting away. Blob ends up um, taking some of that fainting gas that the X was used on the X-Men before. So that's a nice turnaround, I feel, for Jean Grey, who takes a lot of flack for fainting all the time, but she made someone else faint, so good for her. Um, She's great in this issue. I love her. She is. She is. She has, like, so I'm not that familiar with a lot of the early X-Men stuff or the middle or... Like, like I said, I started. <laughs> um, but from all the talk, like she has more agency, I feel, in this issue than what you hear about with her in the early days. So that was really cool. Um, and I think I take it up to when uh, they end up getting captured. Banisher teleports away. And yeah, Crimson Clad Mutant um, is as good as his word for he disappears. He's clearly not wearing anything crimson in <laughs> these panels. Um, that is straight up green. I'd be interested, though, because I know that sometimes in Marvel Unlimited, the colors differ from the physical issues, too. So it might have been an element of them doing restoration or something where something got miscolored. I think if he was in a pink snakeskin suit, it'd be way too gay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um but they, Angel and Jean end up being captured along with the blob because nothing makes you look guiltier than having an unconscious villain there with you. Um, and they found Beast in a little bit of a torn costume and his footsies. Yes. Or tootsies. His tootsies. And um, what a foot-centric issue for him. And we had, like, we have rabbits and we just think they're the most adorable things ever but when they clean their hind feet and you see how big they are we say feetsies we would not even think about saying tootsies and we wouldn't apply any terms of endearment to beast feet no uh so before we cover the backup story uh what was it like for you guys reading this what stood out to you what inspired you what was ridiculous any just any thoughts that come up on these first 15 pages 
It, it feels like a really escalated, powerful threat. The last several issues have not been much threat, but this one feels consequential. Yeah, I was going to say that on the cover. It, they look all really overwhelmed. Like, usually on the cover, there's like some kind of unified front that the X-Men are putting on, and it really doesn't look like they're unified. Like, Jean is off in the background. Beast is kind of trying to help out Angel, but he's on the receiving end of whatever that zap is. Um, and it <laughs> and it it just seems like they all kind of are are outgunned and outmanned. And I find that really interesting. It also does in a really imperceptible way. I see what you're saying, Chad, that like they, it kind of doesn't seem like an X-Men issue. Like yeah. it's just a little bit too action based and it doesn't really I don't know it just in a way it like wasn't that interesting to read because it just felt like everybody's separate talking to each other about what they're going to do and not very much actually happening yeah I mean it's the it's the middle of a trilogy right so yeah. it's it's the filler space between the two but yeah I see I totally hear what you're saying yeah. and Empire Strikes Back it is not um <laughs> you think this storyline, you bring up a really good point, Gabriella, that perhaps this is them trying to change the tone of the comic to sell more because mm -hmm. that the action-oriented Avengers sells more than the X-Men. So maybe this is them trying to solve that and troubleshoot with, well, maybe if we do a three-issue arc that's totally action, people will buy this issue. They'll be more interested. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, and, and we see them change tone a lot. We're in our, in the coming months. We have Frankenstein, no joke. We have grotesque. We have all this crazy. Like every issue just feels like a different like genre. It's it's very strange and disjointed, but also really fun and campy, which is what we love about the sixties. I enjoyed the like good problem solving on the X Men's part of dividing into two teams. Like you know from the evil monologues that it requires these two things to happen. So if they divide themselves, they can each take a part of the plan and then hopefully something will fall apart on the mutant master. And in the back, I, I loved all the evil monologuing. It was like, it was just so classic. Uh, like I'm going to reveal all my plans. Oh, I'm an underling. I'm going to reveal all my angst and how I'm so much more important than I really am. And um, it was, I thought it was fun. It's a lot, it is a lot denser than the modern books. Like there's so much more time and like things happening. Uh, I also had like this little conspiracy theory in my head of like, is the master Magneto? It's a magnetic egg disc ship. Like, could that be a I mean, sign? We, but... I mean, we would probably be so lucky if it were to actually be Magneto. <laughs> I mean, this is spoiler, but if you read ahead, this like green tentacle guy is what the mutant master looks like. Oh, oh, that's fun. Why didn't it just stay that way? <laughs> he's posing as he's posing as a mutant to manipulate the mutants, but it's really an alien who wants to conquer Earth. Spoilers. Uh, oh. I, I don't love like spoilers. That. I think they're fun. I love the well. Again, these are sixty years old. It's okay. I love the <laughs> villains in this issue. I love Vanisher. I love Blob. Uh, I I really enjoy the Changeling, although we don't get a lot of him. I think he's kind of great in this issue. Um, and, and it's really interesting to step back to Cold War America, which is a really heavy theme to explore, but historically the X-Men do explore really heavy themes. Uh, the parallel of what's happening now with Russia and Ukraine and the potential 
budding world war is absolutely heartbreaking. Uh, and and we can wax very serious about all of this, uh, of course, because this is a very heavy, heady time. Now, this podcast won't come out for a couple of weeks. Who knows what will happen in the news between now and then. Uh, but but as we record this on March 6th, there's uh, there's just heartbreaking stories coming out uh, about, uh, you know, people in disenfranchised populations who are struggling to survive in places with no power or water or access to resources. Uh, and it, it just absolutely shatters me when I go there. Uh, it, it hurts. Um, so exploring those themes uh, is relevant in our in our time now, but still uh, uh, the expense still matter in that way where we get to see these voices expressed. Uh, and we don't often see modern issues like that brought up in comics, at least not current events, right? Because of the sliding time scale, if we explore the Iraq war, suddenly it doesn't really fit in the comic yeah. because everything's slid forward so much. I don't know. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I I find it interesting because it really speaks to the strength of the storytelling that it in this, you know, you you see changeling going, I'm on this, I'm on this side, I'm on this team, but like this isn't really my fight. It kind of feels like it's out of my control right now. And I'm not really sure if I'm on the same team as the guy I'm supposed to be on the same team as. And we see that now with people from, I mean, like, not to get too, like, modern conflict-ish, but you see that with people from Russia now who are like, I'm just trying to live my life. I'm not, I don't, I'm not really pro any of this, but I'm struggling right now. And I, I just find that really interesting and really powerful that X-Men is able to talk about conflict in that way. And that it's not really simply bad guys against good guys there's defectors kind of on the bad side, usually from the writer's perspective. Once a month on Grey Malkin Lane, we put a character on trial and I will spend weeks reviewing their entire chronology. We're getting ready to do an, a recording on Magneto really soon, which I'm super excited about, but I have to prep a month in advance to give all the jury members a chance to prepare for it. So next month in April, this is actually my first public announcement of this, we're doing the blog. Uh, and as I read this issue in depth, I, I have a lot of sympathy and love for the blob in a weird way. We have a supervillain who's ready for nuclear war, but we also see this side and it mostly comes out on the changeling's thoughts about how like society cast us aside. So fuck society. Like we're going to claim our place because they don't let us belong anywhere. Uh, and I, 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 I hold these characters in a lot of affection when you can look at the supervillains with such understanding. Uh, that's, that's some crazy storytelling, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, I mean, I referenced it earlier, but if you're coming to comics whenever, it does not matter if you were reading this issue when it first came out or you're exploring things and um, finding out what fits you and what you really enjoy, there's a way to make the connection. And um, you can attach yourself to a storyline or a character or a particular title. And it, the topics are evergreen. The, the drama of uh, these topics are evergreen. So um, it's, if we read this two months ago, would we have had the same thoughts we're having today about it? I don't think we would have, um, but it, it goes to show you, you can go back to X-Men issue 38 and say, wow, this actually says a whole lot about things that people are still going through now. Yeah. Well, and it also, frankly, it tells me where my parents came from. Right. I was I was born in the late 70s uh, and my parents went through this when they were kids. It's, it's, it's an interesting thing to consider. And it, the world feels different, but not. I don't know. 
Uh, are you guys all okay if we take another 10 minutes? Everybody's right on time. Okay, just double checking if anybody needs to step out, let me know. Uh, so let's cover the last five pages and uh, I'll, I'll do this summary uh, brief, but we can also talk a lot here. The X-Men from the very beginning have been set up as the outcasts, right? Here's this school away. We have to hide who we are. We have to train to survive in this world. And we always have had Professor X versus Magneto. That's always been the setup. Uh, and then we see writers who take these themes and explore them over and over through the years, add more to them. And then we get to go act back and add all of the retroactive continuity to things. So we're going to we're going to do a couple of explorations here really quickly. Number one, there's only been a few tonal shifts uh, along the way so far. We see Professor X as kind of a bossy asshole who's build, building a child army in one context. <laughs> Or we see him as the man with the dream. I want to peacefully coexist with humans. Whereas Magneto is the, give us a country, give us a space. I will fight you. I will kill you in order to, you know, he's, he's trying to, he's trying to um, find that or create that force, that safe space for mutants. So we, for a while, it's been kind of janky and wonky and all these, all these kind of crazy things happening uh, as the X-Men fight, fight nonsense villains a bunch of times in a row. The first time we really see this, other or outcast theme explored is that three-part Sentinel epic, which we covered quite some time ago, uh, right before Stanley and Jack Kirby left the book. And then it hasn't really been picked up on in a while, but this issue starts to pick up on it a little bit. So we get a five-page flashback to Professor X before he formed the X-Men. I'm going to say two things quickly. Number one, what we know about Professor X's background so far, continuity, if you're reading from the beginning forward, is he grew up privileged both of his parents died tragically. He got beat up by his stepdad. His stepbrother becomes the juggernaut, right? Then we see some later flashbacks of him kind of being like Indiana Jones-like, uh, having some adventures in Tibet where he ends up getting paralyzed at the end in his battle with Lucifer. That's really all we know. Now, when we add modern continuity, we can fill in a lot of the blanks. He served in the Korean War. He had all of these combat traumas. He had this relationship with Moira McTaggart. She showed him all of these potential futures in which mutants are killed and disenfranchised. And he's carried all of that knowledge with him. So we get to go back and add that later when you read the modern books. In this five pages, which by the way, we get to see Werner Roth come back. He was the primary artist for a while. Now he's doing the backup features. We see Professor X see news reports about uh, human mobs forming against mutants, which is uh, we live in a country where you know black people have been lynched and gay people have been attacked and trans people have been killed. We have this idea of the the public majority like hunting down the other and and harming them, and it's a really rough thing. So we see Xavier who has isolated himself in his rich white mansion because he's a rich white guy. <laughs> yeah, and he's seeing these. Like, uh, oh, sorry, Daryl, go ahead. It's very much. It gave me Howard Hughes vibes where he decided because he's rich and privileged, he could withdraw from the world and just leave the money for the paper under the mat once a week. Yeah. He's got crazy technology and all this stuff, but he's, and he's probably keeping his nail clippings in jars too. Just like <laughs> you. <laughs> Uh, we, so we see him, uh, we see him see these news reports about, about mutants and he's realizing the time has come. I can't keep myself in isolation any longer. He gets in his helicopter. Cause again, rich white guy, and he flies to the FBI where he uses his thoughts to force himself into the FBI building. The man who has been put in charge of the FBI investigation of mutants is a man named Fred Duncan, who we did see in X-Men number two, which is also the Vanisher's first appearance. Fred Duncan is a very obscure X-Men ally that we do not see often, except in the earliest days, and even that is not very much. I think he's sometimes called Amos Duncan, 
which is not his real name. Maybe it's Fred Amos Duncan and he uses both. Uh, anyway, Professor X uses his powers to wipe the minds of people in his way. And he goes into the office where Fred Duncan is working with his partner in investigating recent footage taken of a mutant. And we get to see the earliest known footage of Cyclops. Now, at this point in the continuity, we know nothing about Cyclops's background. He's just the leader of the X-Men who struggles with his eyes and maybe is a little autistic and loves Jean Grey, right? Like that's kind of all we know about him. Uh, but we get to see this flashback where a crimson beam goes off. It looks yellow in my comic book. Uh, Cyclops's powers accidentally blast and, it, and there's a load dropping from a crane. And then he uses a wider beam from his eyes to stop people from getting hurt. He obliterates this thing before it drops. And the FBI now has this footage of Cyclops and they're like, oh my God, we have something to worry about. Mutants are actually really real. Uh, and Professor X kind of shows up in the background like, hey, here I am. My name is Charles Xavier. And they realize he's a mutant. He stops Fred Duncan and his partner from using any force against him. They literally try to wheel him out of the room. They draw a gun and he's like, haha, telepathy, you can't. Uh, and he convinces Fred Duncan to become his ally. There's a handshake. They agree to form a relationship where Fred is going to let Professor X know if mutants develop. And again, we flash back to X-Men number two, and that's exactly what happened with the Vanisher. Uh, Fred Duncan calls for help and says, we've got this supervillain extorting the government and we need help. So this really, this really strong theme of the other is really set in here. And we get to see some really interesting pieces where these themes of like prejudice and survival really show up again. So kind of a succinct summary. Uh, tell me some of your thoughts and ideas about these themes or the way they were portrayed in the last five pages of this book. There is a point where Professor X in his wheelchair gets called an invalid, which is not okay. Uh, that is not okay. That is not okay. Yeah, I mean, it's bad, but like as a disabled person reading this, I'm, it didn't even like strike me that that happened because they call him that so often. Um, but, you know, I think privilege is layered and some people are privileged and some ways and some people are privileged in others and you know i'm i i think professor x is not my favorite to say the least he's very problematic in a lot of ways i don't like his personality um and i think i was one of the people who on this podcast was like he's trying to raise a child army <laughs> like it's not a school but um you know, I think things did happen to him that made him who he is now. So I don't know. I feel I'm honestly like I visually like this whole section um, for no other reason than his wheelchair actually looks like a wheelchair and not like a chair. Um, it's it's silver like actual wheelchairs are and not brown like wheelchairs from the year 1900 so <laughs> i'm a big fan of that realistic representation i love the attempt here to go back and tie in old continuity give us a little prehistory and bringing fred duncan back who's so obscure even in the 60s uh and like tying that in i, I i'm super impressed by roy thomas's work it makes sense when you put it before mm. the formation this is like the scene before x-men number one and in the next several issues, in the five-page backups, we get to see how he recruited the original students, which is really interesting, I think, actually. Um, uh, visually, on that note, I really liked um, his driveway, which appears to be stained glass. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if you want to drive on it. Um, but Professor X's way of 
proving his point involves manipulating people's minds and memories, which is so on brand for him. Um, in a really invasive way, like what in movies and things when they're like, oh, teaching the ethics of using all of our powers and things, he just like sort of rolls in and confuses the guards, wipes their memory, like every single office person is connected to his mental webs coming out of them. She's just trying to type in this panel. She's <laughs> at a typewriter. She's doing dictations. And uh, I, think, I think we could do a whole podcast on the ethics of telepathy, frankly. But if you're like, if you're like escalating into problematic areas, there, I think he's not too bad here. He's just, he's not like altering people's minds or erasing their memories. He's just like, he's removing themselves himself from their like visual perception. Like I need to get in and complete this mission. And then he stops the guys from harming him. It's still kind of dickish anytime you're messing with someone's mind. But as far as problematic behavior, we've seen examples of Professor X literally mind wiping people in the early books, which is, yeah, super, um, which is super not okay. Maybe, right? maybe that's what I was thinking of in the, like this is the theme that he has. Uh, yeah, I mean, it is his power set and he does use it, <laughs> but it's problematic for sure sometimes. Uh, uh, anything else we want to say as we wrap up X-Men number 38? No, um, it, it was enjoyable and uh, different for me um, because I've been on previous episodes and this was definitely, just as Gabriella said, a different tone for the book. Um, and like Philip said, this was his first time really going through an issue in the 60s. And I'm like, they're dense, aren't they? Like this could this yeah. book takes an hour to read, doesn't it? <laughs> Compared to modern comics where it it's the equivalent to like uh, a smoke break in the old days. Like you could read a modern comic in 10 minutes and it doesn't matter. We went through a whole bunch of them with the buns one lazy Sunday morning of, and just went through a pile of comic books. Within a couple hours and you cannot do that. With I mean, it depends on the book, right? Like uh, anything written by Cy Spurrier or Kieran Gillen, if you're reading Way of X or Legion of X coming up or you're reading Immortal X-Men or Eternals, those are dense reads that take me a while. Unbeatable Squirrel yeah. Girl, which is one of my favorite books ever, those books used to take me like a full hour to read. Uh, but but a lot of books don't. But these, the these the modern books are more entertaining. <laughs> these, these are just so wordy. There's a, there's a stairway and then someone's thinking, oh, look, there's a stairway. I'm like, what's that word bubble really necessary? <laughs> uh, okay, so as we're wrapping up, what a pleasure to have all of you on. Philip, how great to meet you. Uh, Daryl and Gabriella, how great to see you both. Um, uh, where can people find each of you online and what do we have to look forward to coming up from each of you? Uh, Daryl and Philip, you wanna go first? Sure, you can find us on Instagram at X Factor Files. We're um, like I said, at the top of the show, starting our podcast off later in March. So check us out and uh, want a whole lot more Wolfsbane we'll content. She's part of X Factor Investigations and has some really good storylines. So we hope that you'll check us out um, and help us dig into that series together. And Gabriella? Yeah, so I um, have a blog and I also stream on Twitch. Um, right now it's uh, Saturday, Sundays, and Wednesdays in the evening. And while I stream, I usually play a game that's not very intense so that I can also have conversations with people because I like to talk. Um, and uh, I have a blog that I'm going to start writing on again coming up. 
I had a blog all planned out, but then with this Ukraine thing, I really want to talk about people with disabilities and how they are handled or have to handle themselves in disaster situations because it's not good. Um, and so I'm going to start doing that again. Um, but other than that, yeah, I am uh, on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook as The Girl Who Sits, and my website is thegirlwhositz.com. Uh, you can find me. I keep my own social media private. You guys on the podcast here are all welcome to add me, but uh, I keep my own social media private because I've got kiddos. You can find Gray Malkin Lane at Gray Malkin PP like podcast on Twitter or Gray Malkin Lane on Instagram. We have some great content coming up. I, I know I keep saying that, but it's uh, there's really so much fun stuff. Uh, our next episode is going to be reviewing X-Men number 39. We have uh, the guests, uh, Seth Martell and Chris Hassan are coming on, which is great. Uh, and then we are going to be interviewing the uh, the writer, Jay Fairberry, who uh, has a lengthy run on Generation X, as well as other things that we'll be talking about. Uh, we also get to review X-Men 39, which I've been excited about for months, uh, in which the X-Men's new costumes debut. We get to see the first appearance of Jean Grey's infamous mini dress. Uh, as well as some individual costumes for the first time. Um, after that, we've got a two-part episode on Magneto, which I put a fuck ton of work into, and I uh, it's the most excited I've been about any episode on the podcast before. It will literally change your perceptions of this iconic character. Uh, I have a love and an understanding and a heaviness and a weight uh, around all of this. We have a lot to talk about, and it's going to be stunning. We have an all-star cast of guests uh, and professionals coming on as well. It's going to be uh, it's going to be really, really incredible. So watch for that uh, in April. Uh, thank you all for being here. Uh, we will see you back here next time on Gray Malkin Lane. Thank you so much for listening to Gray Malkin Lane. I'm pouring a lot of time, labor, and love into this podcast, and I truly hope you are enjoying it. We're seeking to create a unique space here, and I'm really proud of what we've put out so far and really excited about what we have coming up. Gray and Lane is recorded and edited at a private studio in Salt Lake City, Utah. Music and editing are done by my husband, Michael Bell. Gray and Lane can be found on Twitter at Gray P, P like podcast, and on Instagram under Gray and Lane. If you're enjoying our work, help us spread the word about this unique podcast. Please leave us a good review wherever you listen and check out our bonus content and fan engagement on Patreon. We'll see you back here next episode on Gray and Lane.